Welcome to Pro Grace on Abortion, real talk, no politics. I'm Angela Wesley, CEO and co-founder of Pro Grace. We are a community of people who want to have the conversation around abortion. Now, it's not currently happening in our churches because there's so much tension around the debate and having a civil conversation is hard. The church is divided, but it's time to come together. And the way we'll do that is to model our approach after Jesus, not politics. If you feel like you don't really belong in either the pro-life or pro-choice camp, and you think surely Jesus has a better way, then welcome to the Pro-Grace community, a place you can belong. Hi, and thanks so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to have a conversation with my friend, Christy Vines, president and CEO of IDEOS Institute. They are advancing empathy through dialogue for the common good. So I'm sure you can see why the minute I met Christy, I knew we'd have a lot to talk about. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Angie. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it's been so great getting to know you the past couple of years and just the common passion we have for listening and creating new types of dialogue. Could you tell us more about IDEOS Institute and what you all are working on there? Sure. We are about, well, we're about five years old this October. And we ultimately, our goal as an organization is we do both research and practice. So we conduct research in this burgeoning space called empathic intelligence. Um, And so it is I always say the big brother to what most of us know as empathy. Mm. Uh, It takes the work of um, what we often think of as kind of emotional work. Some would say a soft skill. And we actually put it front and center into real strategic ways of living and being in the world, um, especially in the midst of diversity and difference. And so it has application to our personal relationships, but even more, our work is really focused on how do we bring people together across divides kind of lessening the defensive postures that we immediately are, um, that our brains are wired to kind of push us towards. How do we actually create new skills, new tools and ways of engaging that actually are much more comfortable? They are positive, they are affirming and actually allow us to grow in our own intelligence about these really important issues that we're all wrestling with. Yeah. I just, every time I hear you talk about it, I get excited because You know, a lot of people talk about how divided we are in America and in the church, but to hear you laying the groundwork for strategy and also the science behind this has always been so encouraging to me. So I loved your documentary and would love to start there about the dialogue lab, what your goal was with that, you know, and really how you see that factoring into your work to create positive, empathetic conversations in divisive issues. Sure. Yeah. To kind of talk about our film, um, we have to kind of go back to what inspired it because that was really the goal. Um, in just after January 6th and all of the things that we experienced yep. um, in 2020 and in the beginnings of 2021, I was invited by a very good friend of mine who's a CEO to help him and some of his peers uh, figure out ways to to help navigate the conflict that was actually happening in their companies and their organizations. But they were also recognizing that not not only was there deep division happening in their own organizations, but even as peers, they were having 
real challenges of having hard conversations when they were politically on different sides. Mm, yeah. And what was fascinating is being brought in and then eventually having them bring another 10 people in. So we we had this 13 person dialogue in the height of kind of our largest political differences. Mm -hmm. Um, Coming out of that a month later and realizing that not only was there something really powerful to this dialogue process that literally I had to develop on the fly because I was not planning on doing that. (laughs) I was drawing from research and tools Mm -hmm. and just work that others have done. Um, And so I, I I will definitely give credit where credit is due. There are lots of other organizations doing some really good work that we pulled from. But recognizing that the dialogue had been completely off the record, we could not, we still to this day do not share the names of those who are a part of it, mostly because those individuals literally said they would lose credibility. Some would lose jobs as a result of that dialogue. We had somebody stepping down from the Trump administration, somebody who'd worked up at a pretty high level in the Obama administration, CEOs, heads of philanthropy, like names that people would recognize. And so I went to my board and I said, we've just had this incredible outcome from this project we never planned on actually engaging in, um, but I can't share it with anybody. What do we do? And one of my board members, Jennifer Pelling, uh, is also a film producer and film investor. And she said, what if we actually did this again with 12 average Americans? Do you think it would work? And I said, you know what, given where we're at, I don't know. Mm. And so I asked the question, like, what was your goal? And I think we call it a social experiment because that's actually mm-hmm. what it was. It was to see, is this an, a tool that actually is reliable and useful outside of kind of the very professional kind of buttoned up environment that we had come out of with just regular Americans who were struggling at that moment to figure out how do they engage across some of our deepest divides? Wow. Well, it was so moving and I did appreciate in the documentary, you were honest about that. Right, <laughs> that we don't know if this will work, and that actually, I think, for me, creates a freedom even as a listener and probably for participants. That's actually an interesting key to stepping into these conversations. If we don't make that a requirement mm. that it's going to work, right? Maybe yeah. that allows people to have some more freedom. I don't know what you think about that, but to me, it was freeing to hear you say that. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true, and I will just with full. Uh, Full transparency, the 12 that we selected um, out of a pool of uh, people who applied to be in a part of the film, they had no idea what they were signing up for other than it was an experiment on political polarization. That is wow. all we knew. So it was complete trust um, when they walked in the door and met with all strangers to <laughs> and, and were led through a series of exercises that, and that were complete surprises to them. So there was no preparation for them. They had no, none of it was scripted because literally when they sat down is when they were given the instructions. Wow. So they didn't realize it was a sit down and talk to other people. Just Not a social experience. I wonder if that's better. <laughs> I'm actually thinking of my own history. <laughs> in having these conversations, I think maybe it's better sometimes to not know and just be thrown in the deep end. But you you actually had some really specific steps, which I appreciated you laid out in the documentary. And I was wondering how you landed on those steps. You know, was there science? You talked about pulling from 
research. Um, and also, is this something we can incorporate individually? So I'll go through the steps for listeners because I really do encourage everyone to watch the documentary. But basically, like Christy's saying, it's a group of people who come in, they interview them before <laughs> they sit down and have conversations, and then you get to see the conversations. But there's really um, clear steps. And the first is search for common ground. That was step one. Step two was to listen to each other without debating, which is huge. Step three was to exchange stories. And that was a really cool exercise where they were to hear someone's story and then they had to tell it back to the group like it was their own story using that person's voice. And then step four, you actually had them enter into dialogue. I was fascinated by the steps. So would love to hear you more about that because we use some of them in our training, but actually not in that order. So I was like, oh, I could learn from you guys. Um, and also just thinking about my own personal trying to navigate conversations. Yeah. We have found that this work, um, people come in thinking that this is either a professional competency or like a, a political social competency. And then I get we get feedback that like, oh my gosh, this worked in my own family. I yeah. know have a better way of talking to my children or my yes. friends and all of that. So it's very applicable just in everyday life. But just in terms of both the science behind uh, the different steps, but also why we do them in that order is starting with just a search for common ground. When we know that we are going into a conversation that, that could be heated or we're somebody who has a very different opinion or perspective than us, um, our brains immediately kind of switch into defense mode. And in fact, there's so much interesting language around this. We, we talk about like our blood boiling and we get heated. That's a physiological response that wow. is already be, that's already being primed the mm. minute that we know we are going to debate somebody on a different, on a topic we care deeply about. And so um, the idea of coming in to a challenging conversation and thinking, my job is, is to debate this. We immediately go into defensive mode mm. and we start to, and our brains immediately start to look at the other person as the enemy and start, we, we immediately start to think about and focus on what is it that makes us different from one another. So we immediately focus on the differences. There is no way to go from that position to a positive, healthy outcome if that's the starting point. And so we immediately have people uh, seek common ground with somebody who they don't even realize is on the polar opposite end from them on an issue they care deeply about. Um, because what happens is when our brains know that we're not here to win a war, we're not here to find the differences, we're actually here to find the commonality, our brains start to seek things that make us alike. Mm. And so the defensive posture, that defensiveness goes down and you actually see cute physical cues where people's shoulders drop. We had people like breathe sighs of relief. You can see smiles. You don't normally see that if you're going in, in defensive mode, right? So that's why we start there because you actually lay, you prime the brain to start looking and seeking something different, seeking wow. out positive rather than negative. So just to stop there, because I do want to hear the other steps, you're saying in the documentary, people didn't know they were being paired up with someone. Okay. You guys knew it. We you knew had it. done intake forms. You yeah. paired them up, but they didn't know. So their very first encounter was common ground. That's right. That's really profound and even a profound mindset for us to try and go through life with, right? Trying yeah. to find common ground first. That's an interesting factor that 
might've made this successful because right there, you're saying if they had known there was opposition, it might not have worked from there. Right. Right. Wow. Really key step. Okay. Thank you. You can go along with the other steps, but I thought that was really interesting. I didn't realize for some reason I thought they would have known. And that's actually interesting for me to think about because um, that could even reframe some of the ways we have people ask questions um, to find common ground first before you actually know where that person stands. Because that is a nervousness. I'll just take the abortion issue as an example. It's why people don't say anything because they don't know where the other person stands. That actually leads to silence. But if we're skilled in seeking common ground first, that means we could talk to anybody yes. trying to seek that first. Yeah. That's and really it, interesting. And, and it's and even if we never do it, if we if that's the way we enter into our relationships, our conversations, all of that, with the idea that I don't care how, how much, how, you know, how long it takes me, I'm going to find something we have in common. Mm. Our brains are primed differently from the outset, even if we don't go through that exercise. So, so it's definitely a physiological um, kind of uh, aspect of what we do in terms of why we start there. Wow. Yeah. Then the, the next step going into kind of our deep listening. So listening without the idea or even the responsibility of defense or debate is probably one of our most powerful exercises because this is something we don't learn. Most of us don't learn, especially in Western civilization and even in particular in America. We are taught from birth to communicate, to influence, to inform, and to win. (laughs) Wait, say that again. Stop it. (laughs) So this isn't just Christians because I thought this was had to do with my Christian upbringing, but you're saying all of us as Americans say those three again, (laughs) influence to inform and to win. Wow. (laughs) Right. I even ask, we've, we've worked with college students and I often ask, you know, how many of them are communications, uh, have either taken a communications class or communications majors. And so I'll get hands that go up and I go in your, in your coursework, how much emphasis has there been placed on just listening? And very few will raise their hands. Like we, from the moment we speak our first word or, or scream and cry, our brain starts recognizing that when we talk, we have an impact, right? Mm. We get people to move, we influence people. And so the more effective we can become, the more influential and sometimes even exploitive we can become in our communication. So if we have years and sometimes decades of our brains starting to recognize that there is a positive, um, something positive that comes from our one-way defensive debate style of communication, why would we ever stop and listen? Hmm. But if you notice in the documentary, when we ask, when we tell people that, and their instructions were, you are to enter into this conversation without letting the other person know what your position is on the issue that you guys are are having a conversation about. In fact, your only job is to ask questions. Hmm. You actually never have to debate or defend or even, you know, give hints or tips about where what your position is. And so the majority of the groups actually got it and they did it. Um, But it's so interesting because when we are primed not to have to debate or defend our position, our so when our brains are wired for debate and defense, it's basically closed off to any information that doesn't um, that doesn't support that goal. 
right? Mm -hmm. So if my only job is to debate and defend this and to influence you and try to win, everything I do is in is in support of that, is in service of that outcome. But if I don't have to debate and defend, a filter actually goes down. Our brain actually changes its job, which means it becomes curious and it actually seeks to get more information and to learn and actually lessen the distance between the two individuals. And so in our in the film, there's one moment where there's an individual who who is asking questions, but then actually asks a question that very much shows his posture, his position on the issue. And if you notice, there's a micro movement of him moving forward. It's an aggressive posture Mm. and it's micro. And I didn't see it until about the third time watching the (laughs) through. But the minute he catches himself and goes, oh, wait, I'm not supposed to be, I'm not here to actually talk about my position. I'm here to, um, to listen and ask you questions. All of a sudden he sits back and his shoulders just slightly go down. Wow. And it's just, again, a physiological response in our bodies that says, oh, we're not in defense mode. I don't have to be aggressive. I don't have to be the aggressor. I just get to sit and listen and learn. And it's a completely different job for the brain. And so everything then is in service of just learning and listening, which makes us so much more effective, but it allows us then to actually learn enough to be curious and respond because most of us just just don't sit and listen. Right. Respond, recognizing that there are stories and and reasons beyond just the position that people hold, which is often what we debate. Just the The position. Right. Okay. So I want to ask a tangent question on this too, that connects with our faith. So if I can, so do you see any connection? You said the word, um, if I know my responsibility is not to defend my position, but to listen, do you see that there's an added layer for some Christian traditions where we're taught on top of the American thing, we're taught we're, we are responsible. Like it becomes, um, like a mental model, a, a theological, it, it's it's wrapped up with our faith. We are responsible to defend our position. And actually, if we don't, something bad will happen to us. And if anyone listened to episode two, I talked about, I had this experience when I was walking into a conversation with someone who I knew was on a very opposite side on the abortion issue. I was like, I'm afraid. I'm afraid to sit here and listen and not defend my position as if I might do something wrong. And so that just clicked in me when you said responsibility. Can you speak to that theological or what else is happening in our brain when we've been raised to think to add that to the mix? Yeah, there's actually a very strong theological um, undergirding and foundation of our work. Um, In Mm -hmm. fact, we actually tell people, especially when we're in Christian context, that our work, we call it the way of empathy. And we've completely plagiarized it and stolen it from the life and ministry of Christ. So hey, that's a great place. We do that too. I love that. To start, right? Um, can't go wrong there. But it is profound how this relates even to our ability to evangelize the lost. And I often mm. point Christians to Paul, who I believe was biblically one of the most empathically intelligent individuals, mm. at least as we see him um, shared in in the in in the New Testament. And it's I, I'll I'll just point to one story, which is his ministry to the Greeks. And, you know, there's this point where he recognizes that the Greeks have an unknown God. And rather than destroy and tear down their entire religious beliefs, all of their cultural norms, he says, oh, wait, wait, 
I, I've, I've sat and I've listened and I've learned and I understand who you are. I understand how you see religion and, and your faith and your cultural norms. But hey, I have a Jesus and I can implant him right in the center of it. And so I don't, I don't actually have to tear all of this down. Right. I can introduce you to Jesus in a context that makes sense for you. And I think wow. the sad part about um, how we're often taught to evangelize is one, we're often taught exactly what you're talking about, Angie, is we have to defend the faith. And I often tell people, if we're God's army and military here on earth, then we are a poor representative. We are a poor <laughs> military arm, right? Um, we we are flawed ourselves. How can yeah. we ever be a perfect defense system for him? The other thing too is we actually can't be effective if we if we don't understand who's sitting on the other side of the table. Right. And I think that the one of the worst things we can do to evangelize the lost is to go in and to debate and defend the gospel without ever caring to know who it is that we're actually sharing Jesus with. Right. And I often think, you know, how much more effective we'd be if we actually took the time to listen and understand the history that people have, whether it's with with Christianity, with other religions, with no religion um, or belief, so that we can be like Paul and actually implant Jesus in a way that is contextually very relevant for that individual. But how many of us have actually been through a listening for evangelism right. 101 class, right? Right. So, and that's the idea of empathy. How how many times did Christ engage with somebody brand new and just sit and listen? to their story and ask lots of questions. And then he shared himself in a way that was so relevant. Like how he would, the way he talked about, even to the woman at the well, who was thirsty, that I am the living water. Right. He, if, if he had never figured out that she was thirsty and he just walked right. in and said, look, woman, here's I'm, where I stand. Here's I'm, where I stand on this issue. <laughs> here's where I stand on you having five husbands, right? He doesn't ever tell her what his stance is on that on that moral social issue. Yeah. Wow. And you know, this piece, um, it just hit me and I've, I've heard so many people talk about how brilliant Paul was with the unknown God, but you're highlighting, he had to listen to know that. So it has more to do with him being empathically intelligent, like you're saying, and a good listener than maybe the brilliance. We're like, oh, he had this thought. Well, he had a relationship. That's and he right. had some context because he actually listened. Yeah. Wow. You know, I'll share um, a theologian. He's actually a neural theologian, if I say wow. that correct. Um, yeah. yeah. Dr. Jim Wilder, a good friend of mine, um, just wrote a book uh, that I was really fortunate to get to review the manuscript for called Escaping Enemy Mode. And it is very much, I call it kind of a love letter to the church. Because we are hardwired to be tribal and to move into enemy mode. And our current culture actually amplifies that in yeah. us. Um, because sadly, we are rewarded too often for that posture. Yeah. And so I love what he writes because he writes about the practical ways that we can get out of enemy mode so that we can actually love our neighbor. You can't hate your, you can't hate someone and be in def- I, I think of it this way. How many people that go to war in a military context actually look across at the enemy that they are about to shoot and go, oh man, I love them, 
right? We are taught to hate them first, right. to see the differences between us first before we can actually wage war against them. Right. And so if that's the posture of the church, that we are at war with the culture, we are at war with those heathens, we are at war, but we're not proximate to them. We don't know their story. We don't listen to them. We're not curious about them. We can't actually love them. Yeah. And so this is really, how do you do that as a way of changing the hardwiring of our brain so that we can actually be proximate, whether that's just imaginatively, creatively, or physically to the people who we actually see as enemy. Wow. That's brilliant. And thank you. You had mentioned that book the other day. We'll put the book in the show notes as well. I personally want to read that. Um, And I want to make sure we get through all your steps because I'm guessing this story then leads into exactly what you were just saying. Yes. Yeah. Of putting ourselves imaginatively into someone else's story. Yeah. Talk about that. That was fascinating to watch, by the way. Yeah. And that was completely, like I said, unscripted. We, we, I know the the we had two teams of filmmakers filming that at the same time. And so the team that was filming Jonathan and Patricia actually were crying while filming it. Okay. Uh, we should stop and tell who Jonathan and Patricia are. Yeah. So in the film, Jonathan and Patricia are two individuals who joined, like I said, joined this experiment. Patricia was a, or and is very much very liberal, um, very much, you know, I would say on the extremes of the of the left politically. Jonathan, much more conservative, which is why we paired them together. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't know that they were actually going to have a conversation have a conversation about the abortion issue. Oh, you didn't know. They just they actually were paired because of their political views. I see. It was, it was the the inquiry of Patricia. The assumptions that Patricia held about Jonathan on an issue, on the issue of abortion, which is why she opened up, it got, they got to that that point. Now, obviously, there was a lot of other dialogue that happened around that, but that was right. kind of so core to their exchange. Yes, um, and it came at the end. I mean, you saw it led to a hug. That was a wrap. Like that was right after that. That came at the very end of about I think we had two hours wow. of kind of to go back and forth. So um, it you, it shows you that when people take the time to hear somebody's story, what can happen? And so, um, what was what's really powerful about the story exchange? And I will also give credit to Narrative Four, an organization that has been using this kind of work. Um, they started off in the Israel Palestine conflict, mm. have done it in Northern Ireland. Now actually teach uh, teachers in in primary school to do this in the classroom. Um, wow. We very much took this work that Narrative uh, 4 has been doing, but the story exchange also has great neuroscience behind it. And I don't even necessarily know that Narrative 4 talks a lot about this, but, you know, when we, when we hear someone's story, we often are told, you know, tell your story. Mm -hmm. And so we tell our, so if I told my story to you, Angie, you'd be listening to my story, but your brain would have a filter up that's trying to pick out all of the things that you know about me or somebody that looks like me or has my, anything that you know about me, you've already made connections about who Mm. I am based on your past experience. We accumulate Mm. all of this data over the course of our lives. Our brains are constantly making judgments to keep us safe, right? So you're looking at me and if you've had experiences with me or you have opinions or ideas or biases, you are looking, you're hearing my story through that lens. And so rarely are you listening to my story to actually understand you're Mm -hmm. listening to my story to actually figure out, am I friend or foe? Mm -hmm. 
And your brain is doing that like a, an, a, like a computer processor in the background. You don't even know what's happening. And it's why when people say, like, if you're a woman and you're walking down a, a, a street and it's, it's at night, it's dark, and you see a very large looming figure coming towards you, you have no idea who that person is. But all of a sudden, he says, you know, your gut, go with your yes. gut. What is yeah. your feeling? Has nothing to do with your gut. It's all of that data that your brain has accumulated. It's making snap judgments based on what it knows about somebody like that. Same thing happens when I'm telling you my story. What What do I know about someone like you? And are those, is your story connecting, supporting, or affirming that? Or is it leading me in a different direction? But it's calculating, basically. The great thing about doing a story exchange is if I tell you, Angie, I'm going to tell you my story, but your job is you have to then tell my story back to someone else. Your brain actually has a different job. It has to memorize, right? It's listening deeply because I got to get it right. I've, yes. I have to tell your story. So actually all of, so largely that the bias judgment filter goes away because I'm not, my, my brain doesn't have that job anymore. I'm not here to figure out if you're friend or foe. I'm here. I have to actually listen. It's like going to a movie. Or, or listening to an audiobook. Like, yeah. if I'm yeah. trying to learn something, my brain is not trying to figure out, ooh, is this, is this accurate? Is this right? Is, <laughs> I'm just, I have to memorize the story. But what also happens, so that filter goes down. And as a result, the amazing thing that happens is it gets to deeply hear the story. Yeah. And if that story actually is counter to some judgments and biases that I already believe, that's a new data point that now my brain gets to consider. And so the more I do that, the more I see individuals now as a human with their own story. And the more that that counters my own biases, not only does it change the way I see you and the others who told me their story, it changes the way I see people like you. Great implications of race, religious differences, political differences, all of the things that we make biases and assumptions about it, it completely transforms the more we do this, which means we have to be intentional, right? About engaging with people different than us. Wow. Um, it just changes the way we always say that empathic intelligence is a way of being and a way of knowing. Mm-hmm. And so some of the work is about knowing this very much is changes our way of being with others. Wow. Now you, oh my gosh, this is so good. And you've said a couple times, this works because our brain has a different job. Our brain has a different job. So let's um, let's think about this. So we're doing this podcast to be able to talk about abortion without the politics, new conversations. So for us framing this, what may we have thought, what, what did our brain think our job was <laughs> in the abortion conversation? And But if we're going to model ourselves after Jesus, how do we tell ourselves, really speak to ourselves and say, my brain has a different job here? I don't know. And we can dialogue about that, but I just, I think that's such a concrete way to shift when we're going into conversations to recognize what I was told or what I did think my brain did think its job was, but really according to scripture, this is really what my brain's job is. Yeah, no. And it's all of this is so relevant to the abortion topic. And I think normally, again, going back to the idea of debate, we have largely set the abortion issue and many, many other important issues as a binary choice. Right. It's a, it's a, a, a bunch of zeros and ones. Right. right. And so either or either or. So yeah. as we've told our brain that our brain makes that assumption every time we engage in this topic, it's, it's either an, or. I only have one or the other choice. 
Mm-hmm. And when it's an issue that we care deeply about, there's a bunch of research, and actually Barna um, did some research recently that when people engage with others who they know have a different perspective than them on something that they feel very passionate about or very deep, strongly about, they actually feel threatened when the mm. other person is sharing their perspective. It's not yeah. just intellectual exercise anymore. So again, enemy mode, right? So we see that other person as the enemy. If we're the zero, they are automatically the one. Yeah, There's nothing in between. And it also almost creates a robotic kind of context for us as humans, because there's no emotion, there's no curiosity, there's no interest in the humanity of that person. Mm-hmm. Already ascribed them with certain identities, like I said, one being that they are the enemy. And so if our brain recognizes them as the enemy, it responds in a defensive posture. Yeah. And so this do like practicing these these kinds of skills before you ever actually even get into the dialogue is so important, not because it's just a an exercise that's helpful, a skill that we should learn. It actually is a process that over time will change the way our brains are hardwired. Wow. We don't immediately see the other person as a one if we're a zero. We don't immediately see them as an enemy that we need to defend against. We actually can enter and feel like I am really curious to understand. And in fact, I'm enjoying learning, even if Mm -hmm. the outcome is we will never agree. I always tell people because we get a lot of pushback, especially in a Christian context, that empathy is relativism. It just means everything is true. And I go, or they look at me and go, oh, you must, you must be agnostic on everything. And I go, no, I have actually really strong opinions on right. a lot of things. The point is I hold them in my hand strongly enough to kind of affirm my own identity and way of engaging in the world, but lightly enough that they're never absolute. Yeah. It's an exercise in growing in my intelligence. And so I see an exchange with people especially people who who I disagree with as an opportunity to grow in my own intelligence, but then a way of learning how to engage differently so that the way I share my own perspective, kind of like Paul engages with them in a way that is, is it's relevant to them. I might ask questions that are very relevant to the way they see issues, uh, but I can't do that effectively if I actually don't even know what's behind the position that they hold. I'll use one quick example. It's in the gun debate, gun uh, control violence debate. A friend of mine did a a dialogue, ended up being a two-year dialogue on this issue, brought together people who were on polar opposites, people who had lost children to gun violence, others who were NRA members, um, you know, very, very staunch gun second amendment right promoters. And she learned that As long as they were debating the issue, they were getting nowhere. And so finally she said, you know what? I don't want you to tell me. I don't want you to tell each other what you believe. I want you to tell each other why you believe it. And there was a moment, she said, where this one very strong pro-gun individual told a story that as a child growing up, somebody somebody broke into his home held his father at gunpoint in his in their bedroom all while he and his sister were sleeping and then at while holding his father at gunpoint raped his mother and stole some things and left and he said he and his sister woke up the next morning and c- their world completely changed his father from that point on was a shell of himself 
obviously his mother was completely traumatized. And he said, so he watched this one incident completely shatter and tear apart his family. And he described it as I lost my parents that day. Mm -hmm. And he said, and so I always knew that when I became a husband and a father, I would never be in a position not to defend my family. Immediately, one of the very much gun control, no no gun. uh, In fact, it was a parent who had lost a child. She looked across the room and said, you lost somebody too. Yeah. Like instant comment round, right? Yes. Very different perspectives on how to respond to that trauma. But immediately she saw that his position was based on pain and loss exactly as hers had. Wow. That group, as a result of that exercise, ended up staying together for two years and actually working together to find common legislation that they could promote together. Would never have happened had she not have moved them out of debate mode and into dialogue. Wow. That is that is so profound. And that's a great example where you're saying, and I love the way you phrase this, empathy isn't relativism. Those two still felt the same way about guns. So they both experienced loss, but they had different perspective on guns. We don't, it doesn't mean that that changed just because they empathize with each other. And I was talking in the last episode about my fear and I was telling people, I don't even know what my fear was. That was my fear. I've been taught or somehow absorbed that if I'm empathetic, if I listen, that's going to change me in some way that isn't in alignment with who God is. And what a, what a small and not accurate view of the father, right? Who, who sees all our stories. And um, I just think you naming that, I just really, I'm going to think about that. Empathy isn't relativism and we can feel very strongly on things while also seeing humanity. Okay. I want to say this. Tell me if you think this will work. Cause I've been, as you're talking, I'm like writing down and analyzing. If we can tell ourselves in this conversations about abortion or other difficult topics, hey, brain, your job is not to <laughs> debate. What did you say? Influence, Influence uh, inform, and win. Yes. Brain, in this conversation, your job is not to inform, influence, and win. Your job is to see the humanity in this other person, right? Your job is to look for common ground. I love how you're saying your job is to grow in your own emotional or empathic intelligence. Your goal is to be curious and learn. And then your goal is to, like Paul, listen and know these people and see if God's giving you a way to connect him to this. What would that do to our neurological wiring if that is what we told our brain its job was? Yeah. And it's that's exactly right. And it's so powerful. And I've watched the impact of it over and over again. But I also always like to leave people with something really simple. Like if you forget all of this, That's good. One thing (laughs) that can really help change how you engage on really hot topics, really passion topics. And I always say, if you cannot answer the question, I understand why this person holds the position they hold, then it's your job to keep asking the question. Because what happens is you end up having this incredible experience of hearing somebody's story. And out of that, I would be hard pressed to find too many people who won't find something in common, some point of connection that actually allows that defensive posture to soften 
for that to see the other person not as a zero or one, but to see them as the the full expression of a history of things done to them, done by them that have brought them to that point. It's just, it's magical what happens as a result. Wow. Well, thank you. I mean, and I I think it's just, you just plagiarized Jesus. I mean, it's literally... all the time. (laughs) That's why it's magical because that's what he did. And I think too, if we, and even in our faith, if we sit with him and say, how do you do that with me, Lord? Like, I think sometimes I'm so hard on myself. I don't realize God's listening to my story. Right. And he, you know, I think I end up having a defensive posture with others because I don't experience that from him. But if you're right, if we reorient, that's how he is with us and we can have that comfort and that's how we can go be with others. I love that. That's our brain's job is to find out why (laughs) this person holds that view to hear their story and to stay present as to humans and, and trust God. That's that's fantastic. Well, I love the work you're doing. And now I'm sure our whole community can understand why. Every time I talk to Christy, my heart starts beating faster. And I'm just so excited that you're out in the world being Jesus in this way, doing this work. And we'll link everything in the show notes because I know that you and your work will be such a great resource for our community. So thank you, Christy. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you've been inspired to see Jesus and to be part of a community where you feel at home. Join our email subscriber list to receive updates on how together we can change the Christian response to abortion. The only way we'll do that is through God's grace, which is beyond measure. I am so grateful for that. And so until next time, I'm Angela Wesley on the grace journey with you. Pro-Grace on Abortion, Real Talk, No Politics is a production of Pro-Grace International. Pro-Grace International.